Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran, a ministry of Worship Generation Church in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. the great and the magi coming with their money their gold frankincense and myrrh these this is these power people right you know a little toddler like well take your first step oh look jesus is walking you can do it like right the young child jesus the young child and yet when they're talking about this scripture when they're quoting this scripture herod's here in the scripture the magi's here in the scripture and the scribes are declaring it that toddler is going to grow up to become the shepherd who dies on the cross for our sins, who willingly surrenders his life for our sins. He truly is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And not only did he do it to save us from our sins, but to come for us when we face the day of the Lord as well. Because, yea, though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for he's coming for us. The Lord is coming for us. And when we give our life to Christ, he's the author and finisher of our faith. And he's going to seal our faith on the day of the Lord. I spoke today at the men's ministry event at Calvary Chapel Downey. And the first thing I observed right away is four generations. All four generations were there. Some of the dads brought their kids, you know. It's like maybe a couple of six-year-olds, a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, uh, Latino, uh, African-American, Asian, Whites, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a multi-ethnic and multi-generational. And I'm looking at baby boomers over here and Z generation over here and millennials and Gen X in between. And in the middle of sharing, I said, you know, listen, we're all going to see the Lord. You know, realize in this room, one by one, one by one, we are all stepping into eternity. That's the great reality. Every morning I look in the mirror and say, eternity, today in my, my exchange. Faith, today in my masterpiece. But eternity, every day. And you know, it's funny how the clock moves. Like if you have like a digital clock and you're, you know, your life's an hourglass and you know what's behind, what you've already had and what's above you, you don't know, but you can count. And when one day goes by, like, oh, it's just a day. By the way, never kill time. You redeem time. You don't kill time. You don't waste time. You redeem time. It's the most valuable thing you have. One day, click. That's why I always quote the dates, right? I've done this for decades. One day, click. A week, click. A little bigger click. A month, click. A quarter, click. A year, click. A decade, click. Right? So that's why you draw distinctions between a day, a week, a month, a quarter, a year, a decade, we celebrate 25 years at a high level, 50 years. Wow. 50 years is a big deal. 50 years of anything is a big deal. 50 years with a job. 50 years of life is a big deal. 50 years with a career is a big deal. I hadn't thought about it much, but since I've been a Calvary Chapel pastor for 35 years, I recently thought, hey, if I hang in there 15 years, I'll have 50 years. 
the Lord gives it to me. 50 years married is a huge deal. That's, that's why I make a big deal about Bruce and Gloria being married for 50 years because that just doesn't happen every day. I mean, the odds are so against that for various reasons. Is this to say you get married at 70, that two people at 20, that two people make it to 70, the odds, you know, aren't really quite there for two people to make it to 70 just in general. And to do so and not, you know, to actually work through things and love each other and, and get to that point. It's a big deal. The days go quick. Week. Month. Quarter. Year. Decade. And then it's a lifetime. And we're all going to step into eternity. And when we step into eternity, Jesus will transform from being just who we see by faith. Though we don't see him, we believe in him. And we're persuaded he's able to keep that which we've committed to him. But as the good shepherd who's died in our place on the cross and empowers us by his spirit to live for him. But really, when you're going to really know the payoff of the good shepherd is when he comes for you and me on the day of the Lord, because that's his day. And he's going to come for us as the good shepherd and take us through the valley of the shadow of death. I go back to John, who stepped into eternity a couple of years ago during COVID. Seeing them at the hospital, Kaiser Anaheim, and praying with them and praying some, playing some praise songs for him. And it happened so fast, the cancer that he had. And he, he knew he was going to be at the Lord. And I knew he was going to be at the Lord. And I'd been his pastor for, you know, at least five years. And, you know, so the curtain is like a drawn curtain, like it was like, like a shower curtain almost. And, and I'm leaving, and he's like kind of over there by Patricia, but closer. And I was like, I was like, love you, John. I'll see you in glory. And he just went, yeah. I was like, see you there. And I called, John, I called Sam Coke as soon as I got out to the car. I said, I'm telling you, John's, John's going home. His flights, he's about to board his flight to glory. And we found out later that night he stepped into eternity. That's us. Jesus is our good shepherd. Be encouraged. Be comforted. Our, our transfer, our going from here to there in that dimension isn't based upon the work of the flesh or that we had a good day yesterday and we're, we're not going to have a bad day tomorrow because we promised it. Our good shepherd's coming for us because he's our savior and died in our place. He's risen from the grave for our glory and he's got this. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. The one born in Bethlehem, body of Christ, worship generation, Jesus is the shepherd from Bethlehem. And that good shepherd loves you and me. And the application is really simple. Just know and believe he is your good shepherd. And he's always for you. How many times did he teach you about, you know, the shepherd going after the one missing sheep, right? He leaves the 99 to go after the one. He's for us. He's the shepherd and overseer of our soul, Peter the Apostle said. He's for us. So the shepherd from Bethlehem are like, yes and amen. Yeah, yeah. And yes and amen. Get Andrew and Sophie leading worship again because we feel really good about this. Yes and amen. That's the easy one in this one. They're, they're all a blessing, but that one's straight up face value. The second one, son out of Egypt. So he's a shepherd from Bethlehem, but he's the son out of Egypt. So you think about this one. If you ever, ever wonder why Jewish people read, like Isaiah 53 seems really obvious to all of us, right? When you read about Jesus on the cross, Isaiah 53, you're like, how, how could anyone come up with anything other than that this is the Son of God on the cross? And you think, well, how do the Jewish people who reject Jesus as their Messiah interpret this passage that is just so clear? 
Well, they interpret metaphorically that it's the nation of Israel. That's how they interpret it. So when the synagogues read Isaiah 53 describing Jesus on the cross, that's to them like an allegory, metaphorical, of the nation of Israel and their existence as the people of God. That's how they see it. Like, well, that's, that's not what it is. It's literally the sun. But the reason they would interpret it that way is something like here in Hosea in its original context, because here in Hosea in its original context, it would be understood that Israel is the sun. They are spoken of as a sun in this context, going back to the original prophecy when it was spoken through Hosea. But now, with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, with Matthew being led of the Lord, we realize that this son of Hosea has a deeper meaning. It's not the nation of Israel, but it's really literally the son of God. It's very clear. I mean, the context, Scripture interprets Scripture. This is really clear, that this passage from Hosea means it's interpreted that what's ultimate meaning when it was written centuries before was that when Jesus, the young child, the toddler, he would spend a couple years in Egypt and he would be called out of Egypt back to Israel, which is really fascinating. He basically took a religious pilgrimage before he could cognitively remember it. I traveled the world as a kid because my dad was in the Marine Corps, so we were all over. And I've recently thought, like, oh, I'd love to go to Korea. You know, Korea fascinates me, South Korea. And, you know, the Padres and Dodgers are playing their home opener next year in Korea, three-game series in Seoul. I'm like, oh, that'd be fun. Take Jenny George, Padre family, go to Korea and do that. But we're going through some family photo albums recently that my parents had. I never realized this because there's, we went to Japan a lot. So there's pictures of me in Japan. But there's a picture, and it's Joe in Korea. I've been to Korea, and there I am, toddler Joe. I'm wearing a heavy coat, right? I'm like two, two and a half. I've been to Korea. I don't remember going to Korea, but I've been to Korea. I'm not sure Jesus, being the son of man and the son of God, would remember going to Egypt when he's two, three, and four. There's not much to remember any of us from when we're two, three, or four. It's there, but sometimes you're not sure if it's the family photo that makes you remember it, or you remember it from your own experiences. Jesus, when he was a toddler, and when you were a toddler, who knows where you went? Maybe you went to Korea, you didn't know it. He had a spiritual pilgrimage. His heavenly father spoke through a dream to determine that his parents would take refuge in Egypt, and he would do the same pilgrimage, essentially, that the nation of Israel did. He's the king of the Jews, and the father had him go to Egypt to do the same trek, if you will, from Egypt to Israel as their king when he's a toddler. That's fascinating. And if you really think about it, it's almost mind-blowing. Whoa, wow. Why would the father, apart from keeping him safe from Herod and Archelaus, but the, the, God could have done that any other ways. He didn't have to make his son go to Egypt for a couple of years, right? With Joseph and Mary. Fund it with the gold, frankincense, and myrrh probably to pull it off financially for people basically extremely poor. But he did. And now I think, like, why would the father do that other than to identify? Because remember, we're going to see next week that Jesus gets baptized to identify with us. He didn't need to be baptized. We need to be baptized. But he gets baptized to identify with us. 
and we identify with him in baptism. So the father decreed that he would go to Egypt and be called out of Egypt, fulfill Hosea 11.2 or 11.1, and, and for our benefit, for Israel's benefit as the king of the Jews. This was an important part of his childhood. And since we have hardly anything of his childhood, we got to say, well, this is very interesting. Well, when you teach the Old Testament as a Calvary Chapel pastor or evangelical pastor, when you're talking about Pharaoh, Egypt, and slavery, we consider that to be like the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? We have the typology. If you teach Exodus, you're going to teach it like, hey, Pharaoh is a type of the devil, Egypt's a type of the world, and the slavery, the physical slavery, is a type of spiritual bondage to sin. So it's the typologies that you would, everyone's taught that their first year of being a pastor in Calvary Chapel. Pharaoh's a type of the devil, Egypt's a type of the world, and slavery is a type of sin. Which is a legitimate application for that. Jesus in the Gospel of John says that it's a son, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The New Testament harmonizes that the whole world's been taken captive by the wicked one to do his will, we're taken captive by the devil to do his will, and we we're all under the sway of the prince of the power of the air, the God, little g, of this age. That goes back to Adam and Eve sinning. That's our life. We are captives, and no matter how much we want to do good for the Lord before we receive Christ and are born of his spirit, we're captives of sin. We, it's a, as it is, his treasures in earthen vessels, and as it is, even with the power of the Holy Spirit, it's like a slugfest, right? I mean, let's be honest. That transformation just... Well, it says in Corinthians, if many things they stand, take heed lest they fall. Just when you feel like you're doing pretty good, it's like, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm varsity. I made, I made varsity. And then you do some bonehead thing and you feel like you just, you're back at square one because it's treasures in earthen vessels. But we do have the hope because Christ gives us the power to, to all things pertaining to life, to this life and the kingdom. So it's just a matter of growing in humility and obedience to have victory over things, and it's really a progressive transformation to become more like Christ as we grow from testing trials, temptations, tribulations, and tragedies to become more like Christ by the time you're 80 than you were when you started at 20 or whatever that range is. The goal every year is to be more like Christ by the end of the year. If you think the goal is perfection, you're going to really set yourself up for a fall. We don't try to fall. We just do fall, and that's why you can't condemn yourself for yesterday, and that's why you can't have anxiety for tomorrow. Because sometimes you get worried, like, oh, how am I going to handle this situation? Am I going to blow a gasket or, you know, I failed this test every time? Don't even think that way. You might not even live to see tonight. You stay in the moment. And just know the power that we have is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that when we receive Christ, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we could become the righteousness of God. And as the Spirit indwells us, he empowers us to be transformed and to have victory. So I know in my own failures, I never would blame my failures on the Lord. I, I, you know, like smart quarterbacks, when they throw an interception, they look at their teammates like, on me, that's on me, that's on me. Like, that's, why would we ever blame the Lord for our own folly? You shouldn't. The power is always there for deliverance, but we're prideful, and we're selfish, and we're carnal. Uh, you know, like, that's just something we got to, that's why the spirit and the flesh, they war against each other, and we have to yield to the Lord to resist temptation. You don't get in a slugfest with temptation. You resist temptation. That's what you do. Out of Egypt I called my son. 
I believe a very practical application here is since Jesus said, you know, he, he, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. That's why this really, that's a greater, broader application is. Because he who sins is a slave to sin. Egypt represents the world, and the slavery represents being in bondage to sin. Well, Jesus has total victory when we come to Christ because of who he is and what he's done. We have total victory over our sinful nature. We have total victory to not have the world rule over us, and we have total victory to not have the devil rule over us, and we have total victory over the grave and not to fear it because he conquered all those things. So really, out of Egypt, I called my son. God made his son go to Egypt as a toddler and make the same journey the wilderness Jews did and come back into Israel. And even as their deliverance from physical slavery represented that and really represented a greater deliverance, when Jesus came to Israel, they were looking for a political king to deliver them, just like the Jews under Moses were delivered from Pharaoh. But really what they needed is what Jesus really gives, not the physical slavery deliverance, but the spiritual slavery deliverance through his death on the cross for our sins. Body of Christ, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And therefore, he called his son out of Egypt, just like he called the nation a millennium before. Now, the last one is the funny one. He'll be called the Nazarene. Well, okay, in Numbers, we get the Nazarite vow in the law. Like, remember, Samson was a Nazarite. You don't eat the grapes. You don't touch a dead body and that kind of stuff. And you don't cut your hair. Well, well, Jesus didn't do that. So Jesus ate and drank with the, with the gluttons and the sinners. You know, that was the accusation against him. He's like, hey, John the Baptist came. He walked a straight and narrow. Jesus hung out and, you know, hung out with the people at the, the club, you know. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life more than any Nazarite ever did, but he wasn't under the Nazarite vow. So that, that, that application wouldn't apply which would be a stretch anyways, because the Nazarite was a vow for a person that had nothing to do with the geographical location. And, you know, for 35 years, even before then, when I was Catholic, I'd read this and I was like, as well as I'm going to go like, how's that work? And I just read on because I got my hands full of the stuff I do understand and then trying to figure out why is he called a Nazarene. However, it's worth thinking about for a minute. And if you read commentaries and different people, Charles Spurgeon and David Guzik and all these people we, I like to look at and see if they say, because it says the prophets. So it's not quoting a particular prophecy concerning this statement. It's a broad one. So really, like what, what, what scholars put forth is, it's the general idea of the Old Testament that the type of person he is and where he came from and his identity, his calling card, if you will, his, his brand, if you will, is that of a Nazarene literally associated with the town of Nazareth. Okay, well, we can start with that. So what's Nazareth? It's nowhere. It's nothing. Remember when they came to Nathaniel in chapter 1 of John and said, hey, we've met the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. He's like, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, let's say we're going to Vegas. And we say, ah, some, someone's great is coming out of Vegas. Well, yeah, Vegas is a city of millions of people. Yeah, you know. Raiders, the Knights, I guess. Raiders, Vegas is the new, you know, Los Angeles or something. So, okay. And then we said, well, someone great's coming out of Barstow on your way to Vegas. You'd be like, Barstow? Well, there's 50,000 people. I suppose it could happen. Yeah, maybe Barstow. It's like, I didn't see it coming, but yeah, it could work, Barstow. But if I told you 
someone great's come out of Baker. You say, Baker? Could anything come out of Baker? It's a giant thermostat that you drive by. Unless you really have to go to the bathroom and you really need something to eat at Del Taco. And you say, like, can anything good come out of Baker? You, you understand what I'm saying here? You can get it, right? Vegas, I could see. Yeah, Barstow, okay. Baker? Can anything good come out of Baker? It, it's like who, when people were selling homes in Southern California during COVID, no one was moving to Baker. They're moving to Arizona and Texas. If you told your family in Orange County, hey, we're far out, we're moving to Baker, you'd be like, what? Why would you move to Baker? See what I'm saying? And that's how people looked at Nazareth. Why would you move to Nazareth? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is nothing. Why would you live there? Why would you move there? Does anything good, like, if we're watching, like, Division I football and the starting quarterback from USC, you say, he played at Baker High School. Is there even a high school in Baker? You say, how could, how could the quarterback for USC come from Baker? Barstow, maybe. Vegas, for sure. See, that's... I'm trying to give you an understanding like how significant this statement is. So think about this. What did Jesus say? The king of the kings, the king of the universe, when he came, not only was he born in poverty in a a barn and laid in a feeding trough, he grew up in a town that you drew by, drove by when you're going somewhere else more important. You didn't even go there. Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to be the servant of all. Where he grew up makes him the lowest person in the sequence to be esteemed. Whenever he said, I'm Jesus. Oh, Jesus from Jerusalem? The rabbi district? No, I'm Jesus from Nazareth. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, I think this this totality of Old Testament prophecies concerning where he would grow up and become not a toddler, go from a toddler to elementary age, to junior high and high school, to a young man working, you know, with his stepfather Joseph and carpentry, how he carried himself in the city, the city that later rejected him and wanted to toss him off a cliff. He took the lowest position possible by being from Nazareth. And we see even the response to it when he's presented as a Messiah, people go like, how can the Messiah of Israel come from Nazareth? Exactly. Because not many noble are called, not many wise, but God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And there's a foolishness with the cross to the world. And the cross comes from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. And that first generation church that began the Great Commission They went out and they preached the foolish gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, Savior of the world, from Nazareth, insignificant village in the north. It just reminds us that Jesus gave up all of his glory, all of his glory, so he could fully identify with us in our folly. You're washing the dishes at the Sheraton Hotel. You're mopping the floor at Starbucks at 7 at night on Edinger. When Jesus from Nazareth shows up, guess what? He does the dirty dishes you don't even want to touch. When Jesus of Nazareth shows up, he says, give me the mop, I'll do that. You put the pastries away. Jesus took the lowest, lowest form as the king of the universe to save us the crown jewel of his love 
and affection and creation. Worship generation, body of Christ. Jesus, the shepherd from Bethlehem. Jesus, the son called out of Egypt. Jesus, the toddler in Nazareth, loves you and he loves me. And he's always for us and he'll always be for you. And he's going to see us through in this journey. Whatever we're facing, whatever we'll face. Don't ever doubt how far God will go to reach you and your neighbor and even your enemies with his love for his eternal glory. Yes and amen. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our church YouTube channel. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. For more information about Pastor Joey personally, you can follow him on his Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and God bless.